0: It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Now, without any further ado, if you would open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 14, we'll be in the second half of Romans uh, right now. Romans chapter 14, and um, I'm going to forego a um, uh, my normal introduction so that we can get right into the text because I knew we were doing the stuff about the sin sin city stuff. And so Romans chapter 14, I'll be reading from verses 13 through 23. So you follow along with me, please, as I read Romans 14, verses 13 through 23. Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for um, our time now together. And I pray, Lord Jesus that you would use this time to your honor and glory, that you use your word written, accompanied by your spirit, and that you would use this to mold us and shape us and to make us more and more like Jesus. Lord, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And so this is, um, in in my head, I've I've titled this sermon, This is the Christian Conscience Part 2. Last week was the Christian Conscience Part 1. This is just Part 2. And so... Really have the same central idea. Paul's talking about the same idea throughout this entire chapter. So if this looks familiar to you, it's the same one that we had last week that we have a responsibility to protect the consciences of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's what I want to do this morning. I'm, I'm going to spend the first 10, maybe 15 minutes walking us through the text, making sure we understand the text. And then I'll spend our remaining time uh, giving you six points of application, or maybe six implications from the text. But first, let's turn our attention so that we understand the text, uh, so that we'll understand the implications. As we see from the first words in our text, therefore, Paul writes, we know that our text is closely related to what's come before it. And so since since we will all give an account of our lives to God, that's what verse 12 is, so that's what we ended with last week. Since we'll all give an account of our lives to God, therefore, verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So I was studying this week, I found it interesting that Paul tells his leaders not to pass judgment on one another any longer. Because he added those words, any longer, we can, it's, we can safely say that the Christians in Rome, that they were already passing judgment on one another. Or else he wouldn't have to tell them to stop doing it or to to do it any longer. And so basically, Paul's telling them here to to stop passing judgment on one another. And instead of passing judgment, he continues in verse 13. He tells them through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's also telling us, Okay, so this is not just a message to them, it's to us. He says to decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Here again is the principle that we talked about last week and that we continue to talk about this week, that we have a responsibility to protect the consciences of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 14 uh, forms what we might call a parenthetical statement. So it's it's an aside. It's not absolutely necessary for Paul's main argument, but Paul is letting his readers know where, where he stands on the issue personally. You'll recall from last week that on the one hand, we had those who were strong Christians. Those those who were strong in faith. They believed they could eat whatever they wanted to eat. And then we had weak Christians, or those who were weak in faith, and they, they felt they were obligated only to eat vegetables. Well, in verse 14, Paul's telling us that as far as he's personally concerned, there's no such thing as unclean foods. But unclean foods do exist in the minds of those people who think that they're unclean. In other words, if you look at a pork roast and you're the first thought that comes in your mind is where's the mashed potatoes and gravy because I'm getting ready to throw down on some pork roast right now. If that's the first thought. Then, then that, that's probably not unclean to you, right? On the other hand, if you look at a pork roast and you think, gee, I sure hope they have a vegetarian menu as well. Well, then it might be that pork roast for you, for your conscience is too much and it's unclean for you and you should avoid it. But so far as Paul is concerned... You know, Paul's asking for the mashed potatoes and gravy. All right? he's, he, he's looking forward to eating. It's not unclean in his mind. And so then Paul returns to his main argument in verse 15. He tells us that if our brother in Christ is grieved by what we eat, then we're not walking in love if we eat that right in front of our brother or sister in Christ. And so, if you know that for the sake of his own conscience, that your brother in Christ is a vegetarian... You know, like he says, he just for my conscience' sake, I can't eat meat. But, well, then you shouldn't invite him over to your house and serve a medium-rare steak. You ought not to do that. That's not a loving thing to do. That's the that's the point Paul's making. And so, and so, we don't want, according to verse sixteen, we don't want to, we we don't want what we regard as good to be spoken of as evil. We don't want what we regard as good to be spoken of as evil. Now that might sound a bit confusing, so let me explain. What, what does he mean by what we regard as good to be spoken of as evil? Some some people read that and they believe what Paul is—he's he's making a reference to the gospel, that the gospel is what we regard as good, and that's certainly a possible reference. But I, but I believe Paul's more likely making a reference to our liberty in Christ. And and here's how that argument would go. You know Our liberty in Christ, that we have the liberty to do many things, it's a good thing. But if we use our liberty to offend our brothers or sisters in Christ, or to use the language here from the text from verse 15, to destroy the one for whom Christ died. If we use our liberty that way, then our liberty will ultimately be spoken of as an evil thing. And so we need to be mindful about our liberty. And I'll say more about that later. that will be one of the implications from the text. In verse 17, Paul tells us that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, of peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God, in other words, is about weightier matters than eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is not about a debate between hamburgers and a garden salad. Okay? That's not what the kingdom of God about. is about. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and peace and joy. And if we serve Christ that way, that is, if we serve Christ with righteousness and peace and joy, then that will ultimately be acceptable to God, and that will be approved by men. So verse 19, he says, "Let us pursue that type of service. Let us pursue a service that makes for peace and mutual upbuilding." In verse 20, he said, you know, "Don't let trivial things like food destroy the work of God." And so who cares whether the food ultimately is clean or unclean? If eating it in front of your brother causes him to stumble, then don't eat it. In verse 22, Paul tells us that whatever faith we have, we need to keep that between ourselves and God. So in the context of this passage, he's he's talking about the foods that we eat. And so if I have the faith that I'm allowed to eat certain foods, Well, that's great. But if my brother in Christ with with whom I'm sharing this meal, if he doesn't have the same measure of faith, then I need to be mindful of my company. I can't eat that pork roast at my house um, and and invite him over and think, well, everything's going to be just hunky-dory. I need to be mindful of my company. Maybe I eat the pork roast when he's not there. That's what he means by doing it, just keep it between you and God. So you don't use your faith to say, well, well, I have liberty to do this and therefore I'm going to do it. You don't use your faith to pressure a brother into sin, sinning against his own conscience, when his own faith won't allow him to proceed that far. And then Paul closes the passage in verse 23 by emphasizing the importance of faith. So if, if you eat a food while all the while you consider it unclean, so, so you're doubting the whole time. Like, I don't think I should be eating this. I don't. Th- I think I'm doing the wrong thing. If if that is your attitude, then to you that food is unclean and you don't need to eat it. You just need to stop. On the other hand, if you can eat it, and without, you know, you say, hey, my strong, my faith is strong. I know I'm allowed to eat this then that's fine. And for you, you can eat it. That's, what he's, that's how he's closing the passage. So that's, that's a brief explanation of the passage. I want to spend now our remaining time uh, looking at six implications or applications from this passage. First, I want to say we belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. All throughout our passage today, all throughout the earlier part of chapter 14, again and again and again, Paul is talking about the Lordship of Christ. In today's passage, in verse 14, Paul says, we're persuaded in the Lord Jesus about clean foods. And then in verse 15, we're we're reminded that it's Jesus who died for us. In verse 18, we're told to serve Jesus. And so we need to regularly remind ourselves that we belong to Jesus because over and over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus is called the Lord Jesus Christ but tragically we often live our lives as if we're the lord of our own lives you know when we were teenagers we all look forward to getting getting that first apartment on our own where we can call the shots i have my own place now i can call the shots and by the way it's a good and godly instinct to as you grow into adulthood to want to to to, make some more of your decision. That's a good and godly instinct. There's nothing inherently wrong with wanting your own place. But understand this. If you're a Christian, there's never going to be a time in your life when Jesus isn't in charge. He's the Lord, not us. Jesus is Lord. Now, we may live as if He's not in charge. We We do that all the time, don't we? we we make those choices every day we all do and that doesn't matter whether you're a teenager or a middle-aged adult or a senior adult we all make those choices all the all the time we live as if Jesus isn't in charge you know you do you want to know what the bible calls that the bible calls that sin all right that that's what sin is when we live as if we're in charge and we deny the lordship of Christ that that's what the bible calls sin when we pretend that we're in charge we're sinning Because the reality is, Jesus is in charge. And our lives function infinitely better when we live our lives acknowledging that He is in charge. Instead of bucking this in, like, "Ah, I'm going to rebel against Jesus. If you're a Christian, just understand, submit yourself to His Lordship, and your life is going to go so much better. Now, if you're a non-Christian listening to this message, you might... This, that, that idea might turn you off. You might be thinking, you know, I don't want to submit my life to anybody. That sounds like, you know, why would I want to give, give account of my life to somebody else? I'd rather just live my life my own way. Thank you very much. And so you might think, well, if I have to submit to Jesus, I don't want him. But let me address that uh, objection in, with two brief comments. First, whether we want to or not, one day we will all acknowledge that we belong to Jesus. We, we all will. That's, that's, it's a point In fact. The Bible makes that point very, very clear that one day, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The only question for us is this. You know, will we acknowledge Him as Lord before it's eternally too late? Because we're all going to die one day. We're all going to stand uh, before the judgment seat. And if we haven't acknowledged him as Lord, there will be only one fate for us, and that's an everlasting hell. And so, if you've never, if you're a non Christian and you've never made a decision to trust in Christ, I would beg you, plead with you today, to make that decision before it is forever too late. Second comment about that possible objection about why we might reject the Lordship of Christ. Perhaps we have a misunderstanding of the character and quality of the person of Jesus. Maybe we think of Jesus as someone who's going to give us this whole list of do's and don'ts. And we think He's going to come down hard on us when we don't keep all the do's and don'ts. Or or maybe we see Jesus as someone who's just going to get in the way of living my life, of enjoying my life. But friend, if if that describes you, let me suggest that you don't have a good understanding of who Jesus is. Because Jesus didn't come to take away our joy. He came to give us joy. Jesus didn't come to take away our life. He came to give us life and to give us life abundantly. You see, following Jesus isn't a chore. It isn't an obligation. It's a privilege to follow Jesus. And so we don't follow Him because we have to. We follow Him because we get to. And what a joy he is. We belong to Jesus. That's the first implication. Second is that we're a family. We are family. I'm tempted to break out into some sister sledge right now, but but, but I'll 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 save you the pain. Um, seeing the church as the family of God is one of the most powerful pictures we have in all of the New Testament. Five times in this chapter in Romans 14, five times in Romans alone, Paul uses the term brother to refer to our relationship with one another. And here's what that means. It means if you're a a member of this church, you're a member here, you look around this room, and I want you to know that the other people that you see in this room who are members here, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're part of your family. And in fact, the New Testament teaches us that our brothers and sisters in Christ are actually a closer relationship than those that we might call our blood kin. That our brothers and sisters in Christ are closer than that. Because I don't know about you, I know from my own blood kin that sadly, not all of my blood kin, I I have confidence that I'm going to spend eternity with them. All right, But with those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, we have not only this life together, we have eternity together. And it's because we're a family that it makes our inconsideration of one another all the more troublesome. That's what Paul's getting at in the passage today. When he tells us not to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of our brother. And that if we continue to grieve our brother by what we eat, he says we're not walking in love. Now think about that in your own home, in your own household. Here, in, you know, When you leave here and you go home. Suppose you have a particular family member in your home who has a sensitive conscience about something, whatever it might be, do you ridicule your family member about that sensitive conscience? I hope not. But, it, but if you do, I want you to know this, that you're not walking in love toward that family member. Likewise, as a church, we're family. We belong to one another. And when you join a church, you become part of that family and this has implications even for what we're doing right now here in the midst of this pandemic. We started this live stream um, last spring when we weren't allowed to gather. We, and we, we've, we've done it with, with good mud. We want people who uh, for, for, for a long time who weren't able to come. And then we have a number of people uh, who, due to serious illness, I mean, their doctors have said, listen, don't go out in public. And so we, we've started this live stream for them. Now, let, let me set aside for just a moment the people who can't come out due to, due to serious illness. And we do have a number of those. And praise God that we have technology that we can minister to those people during this time. But for those people, and maybe some of you are here today, and maybe some of you are just watching who feel just, you just feel, I, f- I feel more comfortable. And I've had these conversations with people. I just feel more comfortable watching online. Or someone might say, it's just so convenient to watch online. Let me encourage you to let go a little bit of that comfort and convenience, because the church experience, this family experience, it's more than just listening to people sing. It's more than just listening to a preacher preach. The church experience is a shared experience. It's about us living our lives together. It's about us being encouraged by one another. I want you to listen to this passage. I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. You don't need to turn there. I'm only reading two verses. And and this passage is about the evangelistic impact of the church. But it has serious implications for how we're doing church today. Listen, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 verses 24 and 25. He says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever are outside enter. So he's talking about the corporate gathering. If all are prophesying and somebody comes into that church. He says that unbeliever is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, this is what's happening. If if you missed it, this is what's happening. The unbeliever comes into the worship service and he sees and hears what's happening he doesn't just see what's happening and he doesn't just hear what's happening but he sees and he hears what's happening and because of the powerful witness of the people and the proclamation of the word and because he witnesses the seeing and the hearing of the gospel he believes the gospel brothers and sisters the author of hebrews didn't tell us to not forsake our assembling together because live stream wasn't an option in the first century all right. He told us to not forsake our assembling together because there's something special. There's 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 something tangible. There's something spiritual that happens when we gather together and a live stream will never, ever, ever duplicate that. Now, again. Please don't hear me. Wrong. I'm not I'm not dogging on the whole live stream. There are there are people who are being ministered to this who who otherwise can't be here. And I want you to know my heart genuinely aches for those who understand the importance they want to be here, they desire to be here, but physically, just for their health conscience, they can't be here because of their sin. And my heart aches for them. But my heart also grieves for those who, for the sake of convenience or comfort, don't come. And my heart grieves for a couple of reasons. First, my heart grieves because I miss seeing you here with us. I have grown to love you over the past nine years that you've allowed me to be your pastor. I love you deeply. And so I grieve that I can't see you on a regular basis. But my heart also grieves for this reason. So the first reason is kind of a selfish reason. I, I, I love you. I want to see you. But here's the second reason my heart grieves. And this is more for you. Because I know it's ultimately not good for your soul spiritually to forsake the assembling together. Now, I don't come up with that on my own. That's from the Bible, okay? It's not good for your soul spiritually. Now, all of that being said, some people are more risk-tolerant than others. Some of you get on a roller coaster without a second thought, while others of you say you want to keep your feet firmly planted on the ground. And those same ideas Uh, carry over into the church in the middle of a pandemic. Some of you go out to restaurants, and I'm one of them. And I'm super, I I, I don't, I would wear my mask or would not, I mean, if if the governor said I didn't have to wear a mask, I would just gladly take it off right now and and not wear it again. So I'm very, uh, I'm not risk averse. Is it risk tolerant? I forget, but it, it doesn't affect me that much. Others, it is, it's a concern for you. But as, as we proceed in the weeks and months ahead, as it looks like perhaps we might be coming out of the pandemic, as I pray we are coming out of the pandemic, I want you to remember that we're a family and that families are meant to be together. And so let's work on being together, that the family of God known as Potomac Heights Baptist Church, that we would gather together. Which brings me to my next point. Point number three is that we're at different places in our Christian journey. We're all at different places. To use the language of Romans 14, some are weak in faith and others are not. Those who are strong in faith are commanded, though not to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in front of our weak brothers and sisters. And so to repeat the example I used earlier, we don't don't put a pork roast on the menu when we invite our vegetarian brother or sister over for dinner. We don't do that because we don't want to destroy the work of God. And Here's what that means. to, To destroy the work of God. You know, when, when somebody who is stronger in faith pushes his faith on the weaker brother, the weaker brother is crushed under that weight because he doesn't have the faith to withstand it. Now let me let me explain that in two ways. One with like kind of a tangible and another a spiritual explanation. First tangible. Suppose you have a, a table in your home. It's a super sturdy table. I mean this is a well made table. This table is so strong, in fact, that you and your spouse, you can get up on top of that table and you can dance and it doesn't even wobble. I mean, you can do whatever you want on top of that table. It is a strong table. But you have another table in your house. This one's a little children's table made of thin strips of pine. Um, it's made for your little daughter's you know, tea set and this kind of thing. Now, you and your spouse may want to get up on top of that table and dance. Um, and you're welcome to get up on top of the table and dance, but you know when you get on top of that table, that table is going to be crushed under your weight. It's not meant to hold the weight of two adults. All right? So strong and weak. It's a fairly simple, obvious example, but how does that work in a spiritual realm? Here, here's an example. We can, I could multiply this example a, a thousand times over, but for our sake, let's just do one example. Suppose, suppose you're the one who's strong in the faith. You you know that the Bible doesn't forbid the drinking of all alcoholic beverages. The Bible only forbids getting drunk, in which it very clearly does. It forbids getting drunk, period. It's a a sin to get drunk. But since you're strong in the faith, you don't have a problem, say, having a glass of wine after your evening meal. Um, You do that on a regular basis in your home. But because you're so strong in your faith, you think, well, even when I'm out in public, I'm at the restaurant, I'm going to go ahead and have have a glass of wine at the local restaurant. But on this particular occasion, when you're out at the local restaurant, one of your brothers in Christ, who's a new believer, and he's relatively weak in his faith, he's sitting at another table in the restaurant, and he's, he notices you. And he knows that you're a mature believer. I mean, after all, he goes to church with you, and he knows, what well, he's a mature believer, and he sees you having a drink. And so he assumes, well, it must be okay for Christians to drink if this brother is having a drink, then it must be okay for me to have a drink. But because he's a new believer and weak in his faith, he assumes that any type of drinking is okay and he regularly begins to drink and unfortunately far too often he begins to drink too much and he drinks to excess and sins by getting drunk. And so by your example, you've led a brother into sin. Now, is he responsible for his own sin? Yes, he is. He's absolutely responsible for his sin. But do you share in that responsibility? Well, yes, you do. You've taken advantage of your strength as an opportunity to lead a brother. Now, you didn't do it intentionally. You're not doing it with malice. And so was it wrong for you to have that glass of wine at dinner in the restaurant? Well, I'm I'm not going to be dogmatic and I would never dare be dogmatic and say it's wrong on every occasion, but maybe it would have been wiser to say, I'm gonna I'm going leave that drinking to my when I have a meal at the home as my after dinner drink, if that's if that's what your faith allows you to do. My point here is is that we're all at different places on our Christian journey. There are those who have things that are a matter of Christian there are those things that are a matter of Christian principle that we all need to do whether we're strong or weak in the faith. But then there are other things that never rise above the level of Christian opinion. And for those things, we need to be exceptionally careful in how we live among our brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? Because we're all at different places in the journey. Fourth implication is Jesus is our goal. Jesus is our goal. So we're all on this journey, we're on the same journey, but all of our journeys, they have the same finishing line. And that is to be more like Jesus. And not only do we want to be more like Jesus, the Bible even promises that we will be more like Jesus. So it's not just a matter of wanting that, it's going to happen to us. Paul says this earlier in Romans, you can turn there if you like, but this is from Romans chapter 8, so just a couple of pages earlier. Romans 8, verses 28 and 29 it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so do you hear what Paul's saying there? God's, God's taking everything that's happening in our lives, everything that's happening in our lives, and He's using all of that for our good. But what good is that? Well, the good that he's talking about is explained in verse twenty nine that we' are predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son. Now, sometimes we don't like to use that word predestined. sometimes I don't want you know we, we, we have this idea that God's like you know that that we don't have real choices or whatever, but here predestined is always a good word in the Bible, and here it's an especially good word. Because here what it means is that God has already determined, if you're a Christian today, God has already determined that you will be conformed. You will be changed. You will become like Jesus. Now that doesn't mean you're going to become a God like Jesus, but that means your character, you're, you, you are being shaped to be more and more like Jesus. We can take that to the bank. You will be more like Jesus. But how does that happen? How, how do we become more like Jesus? Well, as, as many of you know, I like to read the Bible through, so from cover to cover each year. And just this past week, um, on Thursday, I read these words in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18. It says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed Into the same image. That is the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into that image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, it is a sure and certain thing that all Christians are going to become like Jesus. But it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like I go to bed one night and the next morning I wake up, I'm like Jesus. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen to me, it doesn't happen to you, it doesn't happen to any Christian ever. It happens from one degree of glory to another. Slowly but surely, we're made to be more like Jesus. Slowly but surely, through this process of living life together, strong brothers and sisters learn how to forego their privileges in Christ for the sake of their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. And weaker brothers and sisters in Christ interact with stronger brothers or sisters in Christ. And through this process that we call church, God shapes us more and more into the image of Jesus. And by, by, and by church here, I don't mean simply what's happening within these four walls on Sunday morning. I'm talking about as we live our lives together. As we open our hearts to one another as we're genuine with each other, as we share our triumphs and as we share our failures, as we walk hand in hand, as we do these things together, God molds us and shapes us more and more to be like Jesus. And Jesus is our goal. And that's a good and godly thing. Point five. Even liberty has its limits. I'm a big... Big fan of liberty and of Christian liberty we all have a private side and a public side sometimes unfortunately, we use our public side to make people think that we're better than we really are you know here, here's how that sometimes works you know we, we take a picture of this fun family outing that we just did and we, we post it on, online for everybody to see we, we, we want to make people believe that our lives are really all together and that we're just life. Life in the sand household is just one big fun fest all the time. Look at these, look at these great photos that I'm posting all the time. But we, but we rarely, if ever, post the latest argument we just had with our spouse, right? And so this is an example of how our public and private lives can be used to hide sins in our lives. And this is an ungodly separation of our public and private lives. But I want you to know that there is also a godly way to separate our public and private lives. And this is actually commended here in our passage today, here in Romans 14. In verse 22, I've already alluded to this earlier, Paul tells us, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. His idea here is that we may be strong enough in faith to do certain things, but sometimes it's best to keep that faith between ourselves and God. Sometimes it's best to keep keep our Christian liberty at bay. And so to repeat that earlier example, it might be best to have that glass of wine at home rather than the restaurant. Again, not being hard and fast about that, not being dogmatic about it, but that might be the best use of Christian wisdom to say, let's just do that at home. We have to use Christian wisdom and discernment in situations like that. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. Um, This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I mentioned this for like homework from last week. This was a pastor, so I'm sure all of you read it this past week. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 3 through 7 says this. Paul says, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends the flock without getting some of the milk? And so so here's what Paul's saying so far in that passage. He's saying, you know, don't don't I have a right as a Christian to eat and drink? Don't I have a right as a Christian to get married? Don't I have a right as a Christian um, who's ministering the gospel to make my living from the gospel? And of course, the answer is yes, you have that right. None of those things are necessarily sinful in themselves. But then notice how he continues, and this is in verse 12. He says this, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 12. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Beloved, sometimes we get so caught up in our living, I have a right to do this, that we miss the fact that liberty sometimes has limits. So just because we can do something in Christ doesn't mean that we should do that something in Christ. And again, this is where the matter requires great discernment uh, because not every situation is the same. So Christian liberty has its limits. Point number six, final point. We cannot please God apart from faith. Um, my Tuesday night home group and I were, were studying through the book of Hebrews uh, right now. We're, we're almost done. We're um, in chapter 12 right now. But if, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you know that chapter 11 is sometimes called the Hall of Faith. And in Hebrews 11, we read this. I was founded in Brian and I don't. He didn't tell me he was going to be reading from Hebrews 11 this morning. Uh, so this is just a little bit further down the passage uh, from where from where he opened the service up this morning. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse six says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so for my purposes this morning, we could just stop at that first part of the verse that without faith, it is impossible to please him. You know, some of us may be strong in faith while other of us are weak in faith. But understand this, all of us are people who are in faith. And it takes faith to please God. And that's Paul's point here in Romans 14 as well. Look with me there at the last verse of chapter 14. This is verse 23. Paul says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because he's eating not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so here's what he's saying, very simply. He's saying that if you're weak in faith, and by the way, I didn't say this last week, but I, I, and I haven't said it so far, but I just, it's important to say, if you're weak in faith, that's not something to be ashamed about. Paul is not using that as, a, as an insult. He's not trying to put people down by saying it. It's just a simple matter that some people are weak in faith. Sometimes it's because you've only been a Christian for three weeks. And praise God, when you've been a Christian for three weeks, chances are you're going to be pretty weak in faith. Uh, maybe, maybe you're, uh, maybe you've been a Christian a little bit longer, but nobody has really discipled you in the faith, and so you're still weak in faith. Nothing to be ashamed about. But Paul's saying, but if you're weak in faith, and you don't believe that it's right for you to participate in certain activities, then you shouldn't participate in them. And so if you eat something, all the while you're doubting whether you should be eating that something then by definition, you're not eating it from faith. And then so to you, then it's a sin to eat that because you're not eating from faith. You're eating from doubt. And therefore, it's a sin. Now, the person sitting next to you or in the next pod next to you, that person may have no problem. They may have the faith say, yes, I can eat that. And that's not a problem. And you think, well, why can they eat it? and It's not a sin because they're eating from faith. It's not a sin to eat it from faith and so when it comes to matters that don't arise again this was right at the beginning of 14 that don't arise to things above the opinion level we need to be mindful about what we say and do we need to be we need to make sure that we proceed only on the basis of faith there are some things that the bible teaches us are the responsibility for all christians to do whether we're weak or strong in faith. So we're called to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, fully God and fully man. So whether you're weak in faith or strong in faith, that's something you need to believe. We're we're called, all of us, to, to be ready to make a defense for the faith that's within us. And so when you have an opportunity to share your faith, that's something we're all called to do, whether you're weak or whether you're strong in faith. But there are other things that we can participate in But maybe we don't have the conscience, we don't have the strength of faith to participate in them. Things like dietary restrictions or special holy days or the consumption of various media sources, which we talked about last week. On matters of opinion like these, we need to make sure that we're moving forward in faith because without faith we cannot please God. But let me add this and I'll close is that we need to make sure that our faith is a biblically informed faith. That our, that our faith, that, that, that our, the principles of our faith are informed by what the Word of God teaches. Not by tradition, not by the precepts of men, but by what the Word of God teaches. Let's close with a word of prayer before we go to the Lord's Supper. Father, Lord, we thank you for our time together. We thank you, Father, for uh, the privilege of a family of God, of knowing one another, of loving one another, of living life together, of sharing our hearts with one another, of being open to, uh, to receive uh, pushback on our own ideas. And, uh, and, and that goes for all of us, myself included, Father, that we would be willing to allow the Word of God to shape us and mold us And that we would allow brothers and sisters in Christ to use the Word of God to mold us and shape us more and more into the image of Christ. And so, Father, I thank You for our time together. I thank You for uh, the privilege of, of knowing You through Your Son, Jesus. And we thank You, Father, for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We thank You for the blood that was shed for our sin. We thank You, Father, that as Jesus died, He gave Himself to us, that if we have faith in Him, we can have eternal life. And so, Father, thank You for Christ. Make us ever more and more like Jesus, we pray in His name. Amen thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from potomac heights baptist church please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from potomac heights baptist church